You're listening to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast, where we get you up to speed on what you need to know about cybersecurity. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurityinside. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Camille Morehart. Camille, how are you today? Hi, Tom. I'm doing really well today. Excited for our topic, diving into a world I'm not familiar with, the sport world. Yes. We always pride ourselves in uh, casting a wide net when it comes to talking about security. And today's discussion is, I think, fascinating because we've decided to delve into what does security mean in the world of sport. And we have a former Olympian, Ashton Eaton. When we think about security, of course, we we typically think about computers and and hacking and ransomware and one of those kinds of things. But in the world of sport, security means something different. He almost thinks of himself and his performance as, I won't say public information, but it's like, you know, he's negotiating contracts on his performance. That doesn't seem as private to him probably as what you and I came into the conversation thinking, well, your biometrics and your performance data must be very you know, important to secure. And of course it is, but I think he shed some light on a different aspect of security that we hadn't thought of when we started the conversation. And I think without giving too much of it away, when you're dealing with various sports, and obviously he's a decathlete, but really with any type of sport, there is the mental angle of competition and especially competition at that level. So you have to be at your best. And you know the, the way to potentially impact or influence these sporting events may just be create enough of a distraction to where you get these world-class athletes off of their game. They're, they're just thinking about something else. They're worried about something else. Something doesn't go quite as they expect, and they're just off. That was eye-opening because now where you may choose to attack isn't something that's so hardened like the timing mechanism for a race or something. Now you can go after some much softer target that really is just about messing with the athletes. Yeah, it really opened my eyes to the level of protection that you need in all of the different, I'll say compute systems, but we wouldn't even think of some of them as compute systems, but all of the different systems that that are present in these giant sporting events and how much more open a lot of that stuff probably is uh, if you're not thinking about it from that angle. You know, I think there's there's something to be said for thinking about what is the real motivation here. Of course, we always talk about, well, ransomware and they're getting money or, or some other sort of more, I guess, tangible return on, on an attack. But it may also just be almost like psych- psychological warfare. Yeah. And there's a great 
you know, microcosm of that could be athletics. So let's get into it. I think this is a, a really thought-provoking topic, not just because it's interesting in that it's sports, but also the broader connotation. So let's get started. Our guest today is Ashton Eaton. He is a two-time Olympic gold medalist in the decathlon. He represented Nike during his professional track and field athletic career while working with Nike's innovation team on the design and function of various sport performance products engineered for elite athletes. He's going to school to complete his engineering degree while he works at Intel as a product development engineer in the Olympics team. So welcome to the podcast, Ashton. Thanks for having me. Very glad to be here. You know, we were just talking a few seconds ago about a little bit of the history of the decathlon. And I remember as a kid growing up here in Oregon, and we had the whole Dan and Dave kind of competition thing going on. So, and you're also from Oregon, right? That's right. I was, uh, I was born in Portland, grew up in central Oregon in Bend. I wasn't around for Dan and Dave, but I do remember a lot of folks talking about it. Yeah, you were too young, way too young. <laughs> but it's it was definitely a cool thing, and and um, you know seeing them or seeing one of them, I guess, compete in the Olympics, and then obviously the whole run up, it was uh, pretty incredible. But actually, that answered one of my questions: was did you get into decathlon because of some of that sort of hype earlier on? But I guess the answer is no. No, um, I got into the decathlon in a very interesting way. And I think actually most decathletes do. So for folks who don't know, the decathlon is a, uh, a track and field event where you do 10 different events within track and field. And these events are uh, spaced out over two days. So you're doing five events a day. So the, the first day you do the 100, the long jump, the shot put, the high jump, and then the 400 meter dash. And the second day you do the 110 meter hurdles, the discus, the pole vault, the javelin, and then the fifteen hundred meter dash. And so, when you're when you're a young person, nobody like actually chooses to do that. <laughs> uh, I didn't even know it existed actually. But um, what happened was, I, I was in high school, and I was a decent athlete in high school. N- nothing super outstanding. I think I like won the state meet in the four hundred in the long jump. But my senior year, I was. Uh, you know, looking to go to colleges. And at the time I was looking at division two and three colleges, you know, I was going to play football and do track and field and study something somewhere. But my high school track coaches, they were very astute. And they said, Ashton, we know you're a good athlete. And we actually think you can get a a division one scholarship. If you say you're going to do this other event called the decathlon. And I was like, huh, division one scholarship. That sounds good. What's the decathlon? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is my senior year. They told me what it was. I said, Hey, you know, this, this kind of sounds interesting. So they actually went around calling colleges around Oregon and California and Washington on my behalf saying, Hey, we have this kid goes to our high school. Here's what he does in the long jump in the 400, but we think he could be a good decathlete. And they said, what does he long jump, pole vault, discus, javelin? What does he do in those? They're like, well, he doesn't, but he's, he's really athletic. You should just check him out. So honestly, nobody did except for the university of Oregon. And I think that was because I was at a track meet in Portland and they just kind of drove up to watch it. And the coach liked what he saw. And so I got a partial scholarship to the University of Oregon in the mailbox uh, shortly thereafter. And then my freshman year, I just started training in the decathlon. And I ended up getting, I think, second in the like Pac-10s at the time. 
And then uh, by my sophomore year, I was winning in CAAs. So you had a Division One scholarship for the decathlon and you had never pole vaulted. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I should note, though, it was a, a partial scholarship, a very, very partial scholarship. <laughs> and it also helped that I was in-state, right? So in-state tuition is like significantly less than out-of-state. So. so what was the first time pole vaulting like? Do you work up to it or is that kind of a all or nothing it's both. So you do work up to it. And uh, obviously I had to advance rapidly and they knew this. So they were kind of putting me to the test because I think you show up in September and your first competitions are indoor around like January, February, but you start out with like walking drills, like literally walking with a, a pole vault pole in your hand and then kind of like doing the motion of, of setting it down and, and jumping. And then you graduate to doing that in kind of a long jump pit where you stick the pole in the sand as you're jumping a few feet off the ground and then you graduate to the actual pole vault pits but you're of course not going very high and then at some point you just really have to put like a little bar or a bungee up there and say hey you have to go for it and uh when we watch pole vault today we see the pole bend and all these like cool physics and and they get launched off the top but that doesn't happen when you're young it's just like imagine uh jumping from rock to rock and it's just kind of a straight pole thing yeah i um I tried one time and uh, I made it up about maybe six or eight feet. I was still at about a 40 degree angle. So I came crashing back down backwards oh, yeah. uh, and, yep. and uh, decided then and there that I am nowhere near athletic enough for this. So, but we didn't have you here to talk about the pole vault. We had you here to talk about security and what, an interesting sort of background that I think most people don't think about uh, when you think about large scale athletic competitions like the Olympics. And so I, I wonder just from your perspective, when you think about security and large events, you know, world-class type athletics, how does security factor into an event like that? Aside from physical security, we're not talking about, you know, keeping people, from guns right. or you know, that kind of thing, but just, you know, cybersecurity, how, do, how does that factor in? So there's just so many ways and I'll, I'll try to kind of go through this logically or break it down. But um, when we're talking about cybersecurity, we're talking about people's information or the information of organizations. When you talk about something like the Olympic games, it's like, okay, well, that's like a lot of folks and a lot of organizations involved in putting this event together. Frankly, probably one of the, the largest maybe outside of the World Cup uh, in the world of, of as far as countries and organizations and people coming together. And I think when you look at that, you have to think, well, what kind of information is being collated specifically for this event? And what could happen to that that could be nefarious or bad necessarily? And so I can speak from the athlete side of things where you have these countries that are, you know, let's call it the big circle. And within that country, you have the different sport organizations. They're kind of smaller circles. And then within those sport organizations, you know, you can imagine the track and field organization, the uh, canoe kayak, the rowing, the mountain bike, like there's all these different sports. And so within those organizations, they have the individual athletes or the teams, if you will, which are smaller circles within that. And then you get down to the individual athlete and all the information, each one of those circles has its own kind of data set, if you will. At the individual athlete level, you have everything from the data you're generating about your performance to perhaps your physiology, 
something as simple as notes from your physical therapist on your physical state to maybe some kind of app you're using to track your training, whether it be your times or whatnot, to a blood panel that you've taken to kind of assess what's your fitness or there's the World Anti-Doping Agency that has all this information on athletes, their blood panels, their urine samples, and like, are these people taking drugs? And so if you, if you think about just the individual athlete and then you go up to the club and the team, they have information on all these athletes that even the athletes themselves aren't gathering, like where they live or what rank they are in the team, or maybe anything else specific. Then you go up to the United States level or the country level, and then you finally get to the Olympic level. And it's just like mind boggling where all this stuff just allocates around the, the Olympic Games. Is the information shared across those organizations or is it tend to, to be kept in silos? I mean, if you take one blood test, does that end up with 10 different organizations? That is a good question. Um, so I, I think the answer is both. I think the, the information uh, starts in silos. So I'll get to the blood test one specifically in a second. But the information probably starts in a silo. Maybe I have something about my training with just myself and my coach, and it's just like my log. But I might share that via email or some kind of web link to um, my agent or to the United States Track and Field Federation. And so it, it'll start in silos, but I think there are like, you know, little bridge connections or specific bits that go to somewhere else. And then like, who knows what they do with it after that, right? So it's that very typical, I think, network image that we have with a node and it kind of spreads from there. You know, regarding the, like the, the blood panel or the urine information, I actually don't know specifically what WADA does with that, but you would hope and imagine that they would that's the World Anti-Doping. Yeah, that's the World Anti-Doping Agency. Um, but you would hope and imagine that that information is protected in place and in transit. Now, I can explain the way that that stuff gets collected, and then we can maybe even see where are the vulnerabilities at here. Well, there's two ways to do it. Somebody will come to your house and collect your urine sample. That person is a paid person to do that they're in the United States are coming to see me, they work for the United States Anti-Doping Agency, which I believe is some kind of like subsidiary of WADA or WADA works with them uh, to get that information. Now, from there, I think the, the sample either goes one of, of two places, somewhere in UCLA, where there's uh, these like very expensive machines to analyze the stuff, or somewhere in, in Switzerland, where WADA is headquartered. So if it goes to one of those two places, you know, like what happens to it? Where's the database where people get to see and, and talk and collaborate on this stuff? Does one lab have a machine that tests for something where the other lab doesn't? Therefore, do they have to like share stuff? I, don't, I actually don't know. I mean, th that just needs to be a secure piece of information, as you can imagine. I think it's interesting. I read somewhere that it's not just the particular competition that is being analyzed when they do blood tests or urine tests, whatever, mm -hmm. they actually keep those samples for years. Yeah. And as technology improves that they can go back retroactively years back and do testing to see if there was some sort of doping or cheating that was going on that at the time couldn't be picked up by the instruments of the day. You know, now, now that you're kind of having me re reflect back on some of these things, because I, I retired 2017. What is interesting that I, I forgot to note is when you do a drug test, 
you have to fill out a, a piece of paper. Uh, actually, it used to be a piece of paper. Now it, it's a digital thing. But it asks you all these questions like basic information, name, address, where the test was taken, what time, da da. And then you have to list all the supplements that you're taking at the time. Ibuprofen, or I got sick, so I took some NyQuil, or I take an iron supplement, that kind of thing. Then you have to sign off on it. Historically, I would we would go to like a, a major competition, like you know, like the games, the world championships, and you would just fill out this piece of paper, and it was that kind of paper with like the um, the carbon copy. <laughs> There'd be like three carbon copies, right? So you'd fill out the top, and then you would get like the pink one. And they take the other two to like wherever. And I'm, I'm think, sitting there thinking like, how easy is that to just screw around with? It's just like a piece of paper. And where does it go? Because I'm thinking out of all the you know, thousands of athletes that are being drug tested, where's the filing cabinet for this stuff at? <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I have my pink carbon copy that, you know, I still continue to keep to this day just because you never know, I guess. So that's like a security practice from my standpoint is like, I'm not throwing that stuff out because if somebody messes with it, who knows? I have to ask, like, are you and other athletes concerned actively about your data, your biometric data, other kinds of data, urine blood samples, and its security and privacy? Or do you feel like you're such a product by that point that it's almost public information? In 2012, I was not concerned. I was capturing very small amounts of digital data stored, you know, on a computer network or a computer somewhere accessed by a network. That makes sense. Everything was kind of like local on an SD card, you know, the, and my data was videos of me training. So I was like, you know, who cares? Uh, the only other information that I thought might've been sensitive was my um, drug testing information. Wherever this is going, like I am just, you know, by default trusting those folks, but I have there, there was quite a few documentaries coming out about uh, Russia and and their drug testing and, and hacking and cheating things, just how like easy it was for somebody to gain access to that stuff. And I was thinking, I have no clue who has access to my stuff. So those two big things. As time goes on and, and athletes gather more information on themselves, whether it be video or whether it be, you know, basically spreadsheets of information, whether it's their times or their nutrition or like whatever it is, I think it's an increasing concern. It's an increasing concern the more this information gets stored on networks and databases. I don't think, frankly, many athletes, well, I don't want to speak for many athletes, but I don't think security is really thought about from an athlete perspective, just about like what you're doing. If we stand back and just think about security at the overarching level, to me, there's like, there's cheating in the context of, okay, can I somehow gain some information about my opponents or change my opponent's information and basically accuse them of cheating? Right. Um, or I can, uh, I can gather information about my opponent's abilities. So whether how they're training or what their scores are or what they're, you know, capable of doing so that I know as a competitor, I have to be at least that good or better. And then the last thing would be, it's not really cheating. It's more like I want to just dis disrupt the event. Yeah. You know, the whole world is watching and I want to embarrass the country that's putting it on. So I'm going to 
take down all the timing servers or something so that they can't run events or yeah absolutely is that is that kind of right am i missing another sort of main element of security when you think about those large events you know i think those are broadly good but there's obviously i think priority levels like in today's world because competitions are so public understanding what my competitors are doing if i had access to that before a competition that might be somewhat useful but ultimately unless they're just like not doing anything until they go to the olympics i will most likely see what they're up to so that would be like i don't know it it would be something that is possible but probably just less impactful what would be more impactful is if you did have access to data from your competitors that basically showed that they were cheating in some way shape or form that's very interesting um, <laughs> or or just how they're training because that might inform you of other things um if somebody is just continually running insane times in training uh, or continually doing something that's just absolutely physically extraordinary you you're kind of like what is going on here then you obviously have the wherewithal to probably you know share that with whoever you want uh, so that'd be a pretty impactful information from a security standpoint and then i think you know tampering with the event itself is becoming probably more of a security issue uh than it ever has because of the way that this stuff is digitized and just a- accessed over over networks i imagine anything from timing right i mean you look at something like swimming oftentimes those you know world records or those races when that hand presses that uh, little thing underneath the water there there are like hundreds of a second how simple would it be for somebody with means to be able to just you know switch that sucker around i mean you wouldn't even have to be a hacker necessarily you could just be in the control room and you could be from the country that you're like oh we're going to go out to the, the thousandth of a second here and yep they uh lost but not on my watch you know just like whoop who knows like how easy that stuff is but i i think it's more prevalent to be impactful today because the olympics um you think like okay well you're like switching your race big deal uh, the the olympics still stands for quite a bit in the world if people like use it as a representation of country power or you know there's big economic impacts as as well from like a funding standpoint and i know of athletes from certain smaller countries where if they win a, a gold medal especially but any medal they're kind of like set for life you know that country absolutely takes care of them it's it's like the ancient days where it's just like here's your house here's your political leadership position here's your ex and so yeah a lot of these countries it's a very big deal these athletes for all of us who haven't been through the olympics can you take us through let's say the day of your competition so hopefully you've got some sleep the night before i don't know how you possibly sleep but let's yep. just say you do from the moment you wake up till you know that you compete what does that look like what do you do well, yeah so on a, a specific day of competition you uh, you first have to understand or understand the decathlon competition schedule so the first race starts at 9 a.m. and the last race starts about 10 p.m. so we're looking at like a 13 hour a day for a decathlon so i usually get would get up at 5 i would do my warm up and, and shake out at the village which would take me you know half hour 45 minutes then i would go eat then i'd come back to the room basically you know shower dress prep and get on the bus probably around 
6.30, And it would take in Rio, I think it was about anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes to get to the stadium. So I'm at the stadium, let's call it 7.15. The reason I'm at the stadium at 7.15 is because if my first race is at nine, uh, I have to be in the call room an hour before. It's like a mandate by the folks putting on the games. The call room is where they put your, give you your uh, bid, they give you your number, tell you what lane you're in, you put your spikes on, and basically you just kind of sit there. So I show up to the track at 7.15, I complete my warm-up for uh, another 45 minutes until 8, probably get some massage, eat a little bit, and then uh, once I'm in the call room, we get navigated underneath the stadium uh, to basically the second call room, and we can do more warm-ups there, and then we essentially get escorted again around the stadium underneath to the entrance tunnel. You'd be surprised how much like walking around there is actually. <laughs> there, there, there's quite a bit of like, go for the warm-up track to the call room and then you walk like four or 500 meters to the underneath the grandstand. And then you walk again to somewhere else to get to the thing. And then from that point on, you know, the competition goes, we go underneath the stadium every time we kind of switch events to the long jump and what have you. Oh, oh, oh I skipped this key thing. To leave the village, you have to like get on a very specific bus and the Olympic village has like its own, they, they build their own bus station <laughs> because there's so many sports and so many athletes leaving at so many different times. There's dedicated people on the U S staff, just like sitting at the bus station with a list of athletes saying like, here's what bus you need to go on at this time, just to verify. Cause you can get on the wrong one and like totally miss your competition, which you can imagine has actually happened before. So that's, a, that's a, a big deal there. Are you sitting with a coach? Oh. Like are all this stuff, it's like, are you all by yourself? Your alarm goes off and then you're oh, yeah. like going out to do this stuff? Or do you have somebody escorting you all over the place? Well, frankly, it depends on who you are. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and I guess like kind of what your needs are. And uh, yeah, I'm by myself. And then I, I probably meet my coach at the warm-up track. If not, then I, I would maybe see him in the village for the warm-up. Then when we were at the track, I'm mostly with my coach and uh, my support team, which would be my uh, massage therapist and probably my agent or manager. Although they're, you know, they, they manage other athletes. So they're kind of out and about, but uh, in those staging areas for the decathletes and heptathletes, we spend a lot of time underneath the stadium and we'll eat, we'll chat, we'll get massage, sleep. So if you were guest king for the day for the Tokyo Olympics, it's right around the corner now. What advice would you give to the people that are putting on the event? <laughs> yeah. So for the Tokyo organizing committee, the national organizing committee, I think the, the absolute keys from an athlete perspective to make things successful are logistical efficiency. So that transportation system, whatever time you put on that thing, it needs to be leaving at that time, because there's been many a bus that I've sat on thinking, hey, this bus will get me to the stadium in time for me enough to warm up and blah, blah, blah. And it's leaving three minutes late. And I'm like tapping the bus driver on the shoulder saying, when is this thing leaving? Because he said it was leaving at this time. Uh, so that's a big, big deal for athletes. Um, and then I would say uh, the, you know, from, from the accommodation standpoint, the things that we care about are uh, food, sleep and recovery afterwards it could get social in the village but uh, those things really matter so quality food and access silence essentially quality space for like sleeping <laughs> and then uh, letting your support staff uh, enter the village to give you treatment as you need it 
because oftentimes credentialing is very hard, hard to get all these other folks into the stadium, what have you. Um, and then finally, I would say that the biggest thing is the sport venues, whether it be the stadium or the, uh, you know, the court or the field or whatever, just make it so the fans can be, you know, as close and I guess as loud as possible <laughs> and have the best time. Frankly, if you did those three big things for athletes, you would have people really ready to, to produce their best. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. I, I can tell you, by the way, after hearing you describe sort of your day, if I were looking for maybe a softer target, I, I might look at the transportation system and just say, hey, is there some is there some way that I can mess with that? Oh, 100%. Because now the athletes, they don't get to their venue on time. Or, Stress everybody yeah. out. And and, and and even if they make it, yeah, they're going to be so stressed, they're not going to perform. And, but I'm not... You're not looking for the software target. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not. But I hope that the people that are putting on the event are thinking about those kinds of things because security does matter for sure. Before we let you go, we have a segment on every one of our podcasts called Fun Facts. What kind of interesting fun fact would you like to share with our listeners? My fun fact is about me personally and my performance or pre preparing for a performance. It's not that it's a ritual, but <laughs> before I competed at any competition, I had to cut my fingernails. <laughs> or it was like the biggest distraction of all time. Well, is there a backstory there? No, there's no backstory. I think it's just like some weird OCD thing. If my fingernails weren't trimmed, I felt like I was slower, that I was not fully prepared to compete, and that I wasn't like not put together. <laughs> it's like wow. some weird, yeah, some like weird hygienic thing where it's like, you know what? I really need to cut my fingernails, or this is just not going to be good. Did you have a pair of lucky socks? <laughs> None of that. None of that. Everybody's like, hey, did you have any like, not, you know, thing that you had to do? Da, da, da. And I was like, no, no, but I do need to cut my fingernails. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, there you go. All right, Camille. So what would you like to share with people today? So I know I don't normally bring sports on here, but given the theme and that we're talking to Ashton, I thought I would go out on a limb. And I noticed that snowboarding debuted in the Olympics in 1998 in Nagano, Japan. And I looked up, well, what about skateboarding? And I found out that it's going to debut this summer in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. They were both in Japan, too. And then I looked up surfing because I've been getting into bodyboarding. And so I thought, well, if we have um, snowboarding and skateboarding, what about surfing? And I found out that surfing is also supposed to debut this summer in Japan. So I'm excited to watch all three of those. Wow. I know that they try, um, I forget what they call them, but like trial uh, events. And if it goes well, a couple of Olympics down the road, they may make it an official event, but uh, like an exhibition event or something, I think they call it. But that's cool. Those are all three interesting sports. Yeah. So my fun fact, uh, after exhaustive research, was that back in ancient Greece for the original Olympics, they only gave out gold medals. That was it. You either won and you got a gold medal or that was it. And it wasn't until the modern Olympics 
that they brought in the silver medal and the bronze medal. So very interesting. Ashton, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a, a really interesting glimpse into the world of athletics and thank you for sharing your background. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me and bringing up the uh, issue of security around athletics in the Olympics. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.